Welcome to the What's Up Hague podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. So Conrad, nice to see you again. Um, you've had a quick holiday since we last met up. Did you have a good time? I did. I had a lovely time. Went away with my family and we went to a place that has the ideal combination of mountains and sea and good food. That sounds perfect. Well, no doubt you're back and raring, raring to go once again. Absolutely. And I'm very excited about today because we've got my colleague and friend, Professor Sue Ellen Walker, who is coming to speak to us today. Many of our listeners might have heard of Sue Ellen before because she's very widely published in the area of paediatric pain, given lots of talks, and they even have heard her before now. But today she's going to come and talk to us about a subject I find really interesting, neuropathic pain. And Glenn, in your service, what roughly is the proportion of young people with neuropathic pain that you see versus young people with non-neuropathic pain? It's somewhere around the 15, 20% mark. It's hard to put an actual number on it because we see quite a lot with mixed pictures of neuropathic and musculoskeletal pain as well. But I'm not sure that's really the prevalence in the population because it's more about the patients that get referred to us than it is about how many of them actually have a, a distinct diagnosis. Okay. Before we invite Sue Ellen in, Conrad, what have you been up to recently? I'm really excited, Glenn, because today we have published an animation that we've been working on for some time, and I'll put a link to this animation in the podcast notes. And it came out of research that was done by Verena Hint, who's a postdoctoral researcher here in Oxford. And she's done lots of research into chronic pain. And one part of her research was about asking 77 patients what they would recommend to other patients in the same position. It's really, really fascinating some of the answers that they came up with. And a lot of the suggestions were around how to manage pain, how to do pacing, how to reduce isolation, how to deal with feelings. They also came up with suggestions for dealing with people who don't understand chronic pain and who think that they might be faking. And they all talked about the importance of having hope for a better future. And we've turned this into an animation that we've published and that we hope will be helpful to a lot of young people because we know that some services have what is sometimes called patient consultants. And, and we don't actually have one at the moment, but we would very much like to have one. And we know that young people sometimes, not always, like to hear from others who are in the same situation and who have been through the same kind of ordeal and have had the same experiences because it makes them feel less isolated. And it also means that they can hear about strategies that they may feel are too difficult, but others have actually put them into practice. I've had a look, Conrad, and I think it looks like a very good pain education tool that will be very useful, um, not just to the patients, but to their families as well and to their friends. And I suspect you can even put it out to the wider groups of people who may be interacting with them, like their teachers or other people that they need to come across in day-to-day -day life. But you mentioned one thing there I've never heard of, what's a patient consultant? So patient consultants are ex-patients, people who've had chronic pain or still have pain, but have learned to manage it better, who go into a service and offer their advice about strategies, about how to deal with different situations to patients. And sometimes they can be a very powerful voice, sometimes even more powerful than the clinicians, simply because they have more credibility in the sense that they know how difficult it is for the patients. I think Sophie Fateh, 
who we interviewed in the two previous episodes, is in many ways a prime example of a patient consultant, public patient consultant. Yeah, I can see that. Um, very much acting as a mentor as well for patients who are beginning their journey or are partway through their journey. So, Glenn, I think it's time for us to start talking to Professor Suellen Walker. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. Let's go in. So we're very lucky to have my colleague, Professor Suella Walker, with us this afternoon. She's someone who I've worked with for many years, probably more years than either of us care to remember. And she's personally has been working in pain for a long time and has a lot of interests in different aspects of pain. But we're here today to talk specifically about neuropathic pain. So welcome, Suella. Thanks very much. And as you know, we can't have a conversation for more than about 30 or 40 minutes where cricket doesn't come into it. So we'll see if we can get past that today. We'll try. But anyway, it'll be, I obviously know you very well, but it'll be good for everybody else to get to know you a little bit. So we're going to start with a few questions just as an introduction. So where's your favorite place on earth and why? I think you'll probably pick up fairly quickly from my accent that I'm going to say Australia. And specific areas I like uh, driving up through the outback and just having the vision of a straight road that goes to the horizon and nothing on either side, which is a nice change from London. And also sitting out in the ocean beyond the breakers and just sort of gently moving up and down is, uh, is a great thing. Don't you fall asleep driving on a straight road? I, I, I've done it in the outback and I just found myself dozing off the whole time. There's always a kangaroo or an emu to look for on the sides. So. <laughs> tends to keep you awake. So, Suellen, I'm assuming that this whole cricket thing between the two of you is Australia v England? Absolutely. Okay. And is it <laughs> rude of me to point out to Glyn that Australia won the, the Ashes? Uh, no, it's not rude. And Suellen will have done that many times <laughs> up until this point. But, you know, I'm used to that, I suppose, is what I have to say over the years. Okay. Suellen, what is your favourite film and why? My favourite film is actually The Princess Bride, mainly because I've watched it hundreds of times over the last 30 or 40 years. But this morning, I was amazed to find in an article in the European Journal of Pain about personalised measurement of pain. And it began with a quote from Inigo Montoya, where he says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And so it's just nice to actually see that as a, a quote that I often use at different times. Sorry, and that's a quote from The Princess Bride as well. Yeah, yeah. He's a character in, in The Princess Bride. The other guy keeps saying, you know, this is unbelievable. And yeah. I think I may know the answer to this question, but uh, something that irritates you and why? Um, I'm not sure what, what you're thinking of. I think for me, the thing that um, I get irritated is the, is the sort of selective presentation of information on the internet and often misinformation and that people will blindly believe that. You know, we've been trying to encourage evidence-based medicine for a long time, um, and it's often quite difficult to do that with some of the information that, that's around. Yeah, that wasn't too dissimilar to what I'd had in mind up to this point. And is there an article or a book that has particularly inspired you or that you feel has been very important in your career? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been really, really fortunate to work with and read articles um, by many of the leaders in, in pain medicine and also pain research. But it was actually hearing them speak at the first World Pain Congress I went to, which happened to be in Adelaide back in 1990. And I still vividly remember the people who spoke at that 
Melzac and Wall were there. It was their 25th anniversary of the gate theory. John Bonica was there, who was, you know, the founder of, of multidisciplinary pain, but also I think the science of it. And particularly, it was the first time I'd heard about the plasticity of pain. And so the concept that pain's not a hardwired sensation, but is subject to modulation by different mechanisms and different sites along the nervous system. I mean, that was something that I had never really considered at that point. So do you think listening to people who are already in the field is, is a way we should be doing more in some ways to inspire the younger generations to come through? Yeah, I mean, it certainly had had a big impact for me. I went to the meeting because it happened to be in, in Adelaide. I was an anaesthetic registrar. I was involved in acute pain management, but it was a much broader field than I thought it would be. And also, I think the interaction between clinicians and scientists was was much greater than I expected and the involvement of multiple disciplines. So again, a much broader scope than we would have seen at that or I've seen at that stage, you know, just working in acute pain. Do you think more generally that's the case in pain, that there is a lot of interaction between research and clinic, possibly more than in other fields? I think so. I mean, I've, you know, I've been lucky, as I say, to work both with scientists and with clinicians. I, I'm not as aware of other fields, obviously, but I think that's a real strength with, with pain research and pain practice that we can try and translate those um, findings across as, as soon as possible. And I think that leads us in to our next question. I think you probably already answered it really in about how you first got involved in pain. But can we sort of expand that maybe and just answer that and then tell us where your interest in this specific topic of neuropathic pain came from? Yeah. So I, having sort of got to the end of my anaesthetic training, I decided to go and do a pain fellowship in Sydney with Michael Cousins. So it was predominantly with adults, but it was my first real exposure to chronic pain and again to the interdisciplinary aspects of, of pain management and also to pain research because there were labs that were integrated in the hospital on site. And so I then went back to, to Melbourne and it was really seeing children there with neuropathic pain at a time when we didn't have an established pain clinic or an established pain team and trying to manage them as a solo practitioner at a time when neuropathic pain really wasn't very well understood in children and there were a lot of uh, misconceptions about the recognition of it, the impact of it, um, and the significance. And so those children at that time, I, you know, I can still picture them now, they had a big impact on you know, wanting to try and improve management for those types of cases in the future. And so you talk about misconceptions about pain in children and neuropathic pain, and I think that's a good place for us to start. Would you just tell us what neuropathic pain is and define it for us and compare it maybe with other sorts of pains like nociceptive pain or nociplastic pain? Yeah, I think one of the real difficulties is that neuropathic pain you know, can be quite different to the types of pain that we're more familiar with. So if we have a burn, we can see that the initial heat and the subsequent inflammation will activate pain nerve fibres in the periphery. That's what they're there to do. And so they'll warn us that there's been an injury and we need to protect that area. And we can see that there's redness and swelling in the area, but the pain will settle down as it heals and we can take some paracetamol or neurofen and we'll expect to see a response. But one of the important criteria for identifying neuropathic pain is that there's an injury or a disease that specifically affects the somatosensory nerves themselves. And so the nerves responsible for signaling pain are not responding as they normally should. So it's very different from a burn or a broken bone. 
And really, as a result of that, the pain can be perceived in areas where there may be either an increased or decreased sensitivity. It can come on in bursts out of the blue without any obvious precipitating factor like um, activity. And there's often nothing to see either on the skin or on an x-ray. And so I think it can be very difficult to understand. It's described in different ways to other types of pain. And so I think in the past, there's been a tendency really to label any pain that's not well understood as neuropathic. And the difficulty with that is that there's clear treatment implications for neuropathic pain rather than other types of of nonspecific pain. And you mentioned nociplastic pain, and that's really a third classification that has been developed more recently. So it's a situation where there is alteration in pain sensitivity, but in the absence of clear activation of peripheral nociceptors or nerve injury. And so we're excluding sort of nociceptive and neuropathic pain, but identifying or recognizing that there can still be alterations in central circuits particularly with prolonged or repeated pain, that can result in chronic pain and pain that persists um, for a long period of time. And while there's ongoing debate about the mechanisms that may or may not be associated with this type of pain, I think it is a useful way of explaining persistent pain to families, but also being much more specific about what neuropathic pain is or isn't. So is nociplastic pain, is that the same as what is sometimes called idiopathic pain? It's a classification. Idiopathic, I think, means an unidentified cause, I mean, or functional pain. You know, there's a lot of different titles. I think what it's trying to do is really bridge that classification between nociceptive and neuropathic and another type of pain. And so rather than being a a specific cause or mechanism, it's more a a classification. So you've mentioned that there is some confusion around the definition and its use, its clinical use as well. And that, that may be because people don't always know what the pain is. Is that right? Yeah. And I think what's specific about neuropathic pain is that it's really looking at the symptoms and the signs and that they should be in an area that makes sense or is plausible as it's written in the definition for the area where there is a known injury or lesion of the nervous system. And so we would expect to see, say, in a peripheral neuropathy following chemotherapy, that there be pain that's experienced in the, in the feet and potentially the hands, that it would be described as burning or electric shocks or shooting and stabbing or pins and needles. So it's in that distribution and also associated signs will also be in that area, either sensory loss or increased sensitivity or potentially allodynia. So sensitivity to a stimulus like brush that would normally not be painful, but in an area of nerve injury may be perceived as as pain. So Sue Ellen, why does DNS damage lead to pain? What is the mechanism behind it? In terms of changes in the neural nervous system that, that can result in pain, it may be due to changes in structure and or the function of the pain nerves in the periphery or of the central pain circuits in the spinal cord or the brain. And so in the periphery, this may be due to physical trauma or injury following surgery. One of the clear examples is phantom limb pain following amputation or damage may be caused by toxins or treatments such as chemotherapy or neurological diseases such as Guillain-Barre. 
And the function of the nerves may also be altered. So they may fire off at lower thresholds. There may be changes in the distribution or function of receptors so that overall there's a shift in the balance. So an increase in excitability and a reduction in inhibition. In the spinal cord, there may be um, direct compression due to tumours or traumatic injuries, particularly spinal cord injury, which is much more likely in, in adults than it is in children. But also persistent pain inputs can, again, alter this balance of, of excitation and inhibition. There may also be alterations in the interactions between the nervous system and immune cells, such as microglia and, and astrocytes. And overall, this can result in, in central sensitization. And then, obviously, pain activates a number of, of circuits in the brain that can tell us about the sensory aspects of pain, so where it is, what it feels like, how strong it is, um, such as regions like the thalamus, the somatosensory cortex, but also areas that are involved in the affective or emotional aspects of pain, so effects on our mood and fear and reward circuits. And again, you know, these circuits can modulate the perception of pain. And it's that shift in balance between excitation and also inhibition. And we do have very good, strong endogenous inhibitory mechanisms. But once that system is out of balance, the pain can persist. And you've talked through quite a lot of causes with that explanation, but how does the sort of spectrum of disease that causes neuropathic pain in children differ from that that we see in adults? I mean, there's a lot of conditions that are very common in adults that we rarely see in children. So post-hepatic neuralgia, very rare in children unless they're immunocompromised and painful diabetic neuropathy, really, because children haven't had the disease for the duration that causes those changes. We know a lot about the prevalence of neuropathic pain in adults. So about 6 to 10% of adults will get neuropathic pain. We don't know what the sort of similar prevalence is in, in children. We know that at pain clinics and, and some specialist pain clinics, you know, a high proportion up to 20 to 30% of children may have neuropathic pain, but the sort of population prevalence is much less clear. And so, Ellen, you mentioned the role of excitation and inhibition in neuropathic pain, and, and we know that excitation and inhibition play a big role in non-neuropathic pain. Has the same been established in neuropathic pain? Yes. So, in, I mean, if it's related to the peripheral injury, there may be a neuroma and, and increased firing and increased excitability, alterations in sodium channel distribution or function with sodium channelopathies that will increase excitability and reduce firing thresholds, and also structural changes like neuromas that may fire off more easily. But again, once that pain gets to the central nervous system, there will be, you know, the normal balance of excitatory and inhibitory mechanisms. Um, so disinhibition can be affected and changes in the circuits. And again, you know, that may involve neuroimmune interactions or alterations at receptor levels. And I have to ask this, of course, as a psychologist, as a huge part of inhibition and excitation is, is feelings and, and thoughts uh, catastrophizing, pain catastrophizing. What is the role of those factors in neuropathic pain? Absolutely the same as, as any type of, of chronic pain. And again, you know, once the pain gets to the, the brain and there's the, the role of those different circuits, you know, they will be important in neuropathic pain as they are in, in any type of pain. And we've, you know, recently done some research looking at MRIs in children with neuropathic pain and have seen alterations in the functional connectivity 
between areas involved in inhibition, so from the frontal cortex and, and other areas of the brain. And so even in children, we're seeing those differences in balance in circuits. And that's, I mean, been very well established in, in adult with neuropathic pain as well. It's, it's something that we test for as well, you know, the descending inhibitory pathways, and we can look at that with condition pain modulation. And again, you know, a lot of the psychological therapies can potentially feed into those inhibitory mechanisms. And I'm running ahead of myself a little bit because we're going to talk a little bit more about treatment. In my experience, neuropathic pain is often mainly treated with medication, but it sounds like potentially pain management type strategies might be important too then. Absolutely. I mean, the same as any, any form of chronic pain. And certainly, you know, anyone who comes to our chronic pain clinic, whether it be with neuropathic pain or generalized musculoskeletal pain, irrespective of the type or, or any underlying etiology, management will still be based on a, a biopsychosocial assessment and formulation by an interdisciplinary team with you know, medications as one potential component of that, but really a, an important role for physiotherapy, psychology um, and other interventions. So I think sometimes, as we talked about earlier, there's a bit of a diagnostic confusion sometimes about neuropathic pain. So how should we diagnose it? The first sort of step is, is looking for probable neuropathic pain. And we can do that with a number of screening questionnaires. And these have been well validated in adults. They've got about 80 to 85% specificity and sensitivity for neuropathic pain. So there's questionnaires um, such as the DN4 or the SLANS that are beginning to be used in children and adolescents as well and as indicators of neuropathic pain. And so these include questionnaires about specific symptoms. Do they have burning? Do they have altered sensitivity? Does the pain come on in bursts? And also relationships to signs. So is there sensitivity to light touch? Or to pressure. And we've been looking at uh, the SLANs in children with um, neuropathic pain and also with other types of pain. And we found that it's very sensitive for detecting neuropathic pain. And so uh, similar to what we see in adults, that it will detect it in about 80 to 85% of children that we feel have neuropathic pain. And that is improved if we use examination findings rather than self-reported signs. So if we're actually examining with a brush to see if there's sensitivity in the area rather than the child saying that touch feels different. But where it's very different from, from adults is that the specificity is much lower. And so it's much more likely that you know, scores could also be high in someone with generalized musculoskeletal pain. And I think that is not a huge problem because what we want with these tools is to identify those kids with probable neuropathic pain. And so this is something that GPs and pediatricians um, could use. And then the next step will be a sort of more specialist evaluation and assessment to see if they move up to probable neuropathic pain. And then if they have a clear lesion or disease that can be diagnosed such as you know something like a, a peripheral neuropathy and they've got changes on nerve conduction studies, that will move it up to definite neuropathic pain. So I think the important thing is not missing children with probable neuropathic pain and that's the role of, of these screening tools. And I think as you talk about the specialist assessments and putting on the levels, you've, you've sort of alluded to the fact that you do quantitative sensory testing 
of these young people to add into the questionnaires and the clinical perception. So would you just explain to us briefly what quantitative sensory testing is? So a test that we've been doing or series of tests we've been doing for some time. And so we use a series of graded thermal and mechanical stimuli to look at thresholds for detection of things like cool and warm or light touch and vibration, um, and also pain thresholds for pressure, heat and cold. So all the tests start with something that's very mild and gradually gets stronger. And so we're looking for the point where it changes. Um, we're not asking children to put up with this for as long as they can, or we're not using a, a sort of really strong stimulus from the beginning. It's looking for the point where, where things change. And that can help us determine, you know, if their sensory signs are present, is there an increased sensitivity or a decreased sensitivity, but also determine the distribution of those changes. So are they in the area where we would expect if there was, was a nerve injury? And so it's really, um, you know, trying to enhance the sort of clinical examination findings that we may be able to pick up from a normal sort of neurological examination. And how sensitive and specific are the results that you tend to get? So it, it still requires the um, cooperation and, and the report of the patient. And, and so it's not a thermometer and it's not a, an objective test like nerve conduction studies but it will give us information about the degree of sensitivity and I think importantly, the distribution and it's matching the two of those that are important in coming back to that question of, of neuropathic pain and a, a disease or lesion um, and a plausible distribution of changes. I think the other thing that, that it can help us with is identifying specific profiles of change and this is something that's been used increasingly in adults as a way of trying to guide treatment response. So is there predominantly mechanical hyperalgesia that may be related to, to more central sensitization mechanisms? Is there a thermal hyperalgesia profile or sensory loss? And so in adults, there's evidence that that can guide which treatment you may respond better to. The other, I think, important area for us is, is mapping the area and the distribution of change. And so we can do that and children will, will tolerate this quite well. We'll start well away from, from the area of pain, move towards it um, with a brush or a cool or a warm roller across the skin and ask them to tell us if it changes, if it becomes more or less sensitive or if it starts to feel uncomfortable or painful. And again, we can um, map the area and also the intensity of any change. And that can be useful if we're looking, um, for example, around scars and we're thinking about whether nerve blocks might be indicated. Um, so we can see where there's an area that is sensitive and whether that changes with treatment. Okay. So one of the things you, you talked about there, Sue Ellen, was targets, things like quantitative sensory testing may help us with. And... Yeah. Again, as an anaesthetist, that really appeals. You know, we do sort of, or, or should we, maybe I'll turn the question around, should we think when we're treating neuropathic pain that we do have more targets to aim at and so therefore medical therapy might have more success? I think it's been a, a real difficulty with, with neuropathic pain and, and as you know, a lot of the evidence in the controlled trials have been conducted in adults and many of the medications that have been tried really have mixed results and not great efficacy. And, and so numbers needed to treat of, you know, three to four to seven. And one of the questions that's been raised is that should we be 
treating everyone with diabetic neuropathy in the same way or everyone with post-surgical neuropathic pain in the same way? Or should we be looking at the actual pattern of sensory change? And does that give us an insight into the mechanisms that are underlying their pain? And, you know, can we target those with specific medications? And so that's been the, the approach that has been looked at in adults with sort of trying to develop these sensory phenotypes and sensory profiles that can give us a better indication of the mechanism and therefore we can match the drug to the mechanism in that particular patient and hopefully get a better efficacy than just trying any of the medications in all patients with neuropathic pain. And these children present with high levels of, as we discussed earlier, disability. The impact on them is very much like we see in many chronic pains patients, whatever the etiology of that, that pain happens to be. But from the work you've done, do you, do you think there's a difference? Do they present in a different way? Is it neuropathic pain? Does that lead to more sort of disability, more effects on their day-to-day life, their functioning? Or do you find there's not much difference? I think it's fairly similar. And in fact, I've looked at that in some of our cohorts of, with neuropathic pain and, and musculoskeletal pain. So the, the driver may be more how severe you need to be to get to a tertiary pain clinic rather than, than what the condition is. But certainly in both of those broad groups, the levels of, of pain catastrophizing um, impact on quality of life associated changes in emotional distress were very similar in neuropathic pain and in musculoskeletal pain. So I, again, I think it's, you know, it's why the biopsychosocial model is needed and the interdisciplinary treatment, irrespective of, of the underlying condition. To somebody like me, neuropathic pain seems like almost an interesting mix of acute pain and chronic pain. Namely, you have a lesion, you have pathology, you have damage to the central nervous system that results in chronic pain. In most cases of kind of acute pain, you know, we have very good medication that can target the site of the pain. Why don't we have that in neuropathic pain? I think it's because of the, the nature of the injury. You know, for things like inflammatory responses to burn or bone fractures, even post-surgical pain, you know, opioids and, and non-steroidals and, and paracetamol work very well on that type of acute pain. In terms of neuropathic pain, it's really the mechanism that, that's quite different um, and it's really trying to reduce that excitability either by anticonvulsants to try and reduce that, that sort of excess firing in, in the damaged nerves or you know antidepressants to try and reduce or improve the descending inhibition and, and alter that balance of, of transmitters in that way. It's really trying, I think it's, it's more the mechanism underlying it than the sort of acute versus chronic differentiation. And excess firing happens in non-neuropathic pain as well. And so in future, would it be possible that the medication that is helpful for neuropathic pain could potentially be helpful for non-neuropathic pain? Yeah, it will depend on the, on the actual mechanism again. I mean, if it's an inflammatory response in the, in the periphery, I mean, you're going to need an anti-inflammatory drug to do that. Or, you know, to have that mechanism. There's certainly a lot of work ongoing, you know, looking for more specific drugs for neuropathic pain. And, and one of the focuses has been on, on more selective sodium channel antagonists. But currently, we're not at a stage of having clinically available 
drugs in in that class that are effective enough. So there's certainly huge interest to develop more specific drugs for neuropathic pain, and that would be a huge advance. So we've discussed how we're going to treat these young people, but then what about outcomes? You know, is, does neuropathic pain tend to have a different outcome in young people than other etiologies of pain? Or one of the things that we definitely sort of anecdotally think is that neuropathic pain in young people tends to have a better outcome than it does in adults. But is that true? I don't think there's there's good evidence either way. As you say, you know, we have anecdotal feelings about that um, and, and similarly about CRPS in adolescents compared to adults. I don't think we have enough robust follow-up data to to confirm that one way or the other. And so I think, again, it will come back to, uh, irrespective of the etiology, you know, what outcomes are we looking at? And pain will be one of them, but also, you know, emotional and physical function, um, ability to go to school, all those sort of outcomes that are so important in pediatric chronic pain. You know, we do need longer-term follow-up to confirm the efficacy of our treatments overall. How do you see the future of neuropathic pain in terms of the direction that research is going to take, but also in terms of the treatments? I think in terms of research, a lot more, you know, there'll be continuing work on, you know, the sensory phenotyping and trying to work out who is going to respond best to which treatment. And we've shown that that we do see the same sensory profiles with, with QST as we've seen in adults. But again, we're not at the stage of, of putting that into a clinical trial and seeing whether that can predict treatment response. In terms of new pharmacological treatments, uh, it's something that I've been waiting for for many years. I think it is a very active area of, of research, but it is also a difficult area to really get um, an effective new treatment. But there is ongoing work in that field. And I think, again, you know, as in all aspects of chronic pain, having access to interdisciplinary management for more children is, you know, a high priority, no matter what the, the underlying cause is, whether it be neuropathic or, or other types of pain. And I think that is something that, that is still difficult and is not necessarily prioritised. I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. I'm going to ask you whether we will ever be able to completely treat neuropathic pain, neuropathic pain down to zero. I think getting any chronic pain to zero is always going to be very optimistic. You know, it's a complex experience and, and with sensory and emotional components. And so we are always going to need a interdisciplinary approach. I don't think any pharmacological treatment, certainly not in life, my lifetime, will cure chronic pain or treat any type of particularly neuropathic pain, bring it down to zero. Yeah, I, I'm not very good at uh, with my crystal ball, I have to say. You know, I think we'll have better treatments. You know, when I think when I started doing chronic pain and, and people didn't believe that kids had phantom limb pain, you know, we've come a long way and there's, there's a lot more understanding and uh, access to, to different treatments. But it will be a, an ongoing process. So anyway, Sue Ellen, thank you so much. We've just got one final question to ask you. And it's, it's, what do you enjoy about working with pain? I think the main thing for me is, is, is working in a team. And that was really through a recognition of, of that we need a team of people to work in pain. 
but it all also is much more rewarding. And it means that we can learn from each other. And, and so we get used to the sort of full aspects of not just the biological, but also the psychological and, and, and social impact. And there's that support structure that, that's in place, both for the families and the, and the patients, but all, also for ourselves. Pardon, I think, Zuella, that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you ever so much. We'll see you at work on Monday. Jolly good. Thank you both very much. Well, Conrad, that was a really enjoyable interview with Sue Ellen and uh, really informative. Very grateful to Sue Ellen for spending that much time with us. What did you find? What was your main take-home message from that or what did you find fascinating? Well, there were lots of fascinating things about the interview. I don't consider myself a great expert on neuropathic pain, I have to say. So for me, a lot of it was new material. There's one thing that stood out for me, and that was what she said about the fact that she feels that psychological factors are as important in neuropathic pain as it is in, in other pain presentations. And I wasn't quite aware of that to that extent. And it's, it's very interesting to hear an expert like her talk about it. And of course, when I say psychological factors, I don't mean to say that the pain is all in their head and, and that it isn't real. But we do know that concepts like catastrophizing can play a role in the maintenance of disability. But what this also means is that if medical approaches don't resolve the pain, then we can refer these patients to pain management programs and, and that would be the approach to take then. What do you think? Yes, I, I mean, I agree. I think it, what it really does is reinforces the message of the biopsychosocial formulation and approach that we have to pain management. Absolutely. You know, and it, it's irrespective of whatever the diagnosis might be or the etiology of the pain might be, fundamentally, we still need to treat the patients with this biopsychosocial formulation in mind and devise your individual interdisciplinary plan for them. And I think she very much was very clear that the idea that we don't really treat neuropathic pain differently to any other sort of pain. Yes, we might have a few more medical options in the sense that there are medications that might be more successful in these, in that sort of presentation, but it's not the answer on its own. You know, the answer comes from the interdisciplinary plan that we put in place. I completely agree. Was there anything else that struck you? What I really liked was Sue Ellen's approach to diagnosis, where we talked about the pain questionnaires and she was alluding to the very good work that she's been doing recently in trying to validate the neuropathic pain scores that are used in adults. And we're having a lot of success with that with children. She's showing that it's a good pathway to diagnosis. But what she was very keen to point out was that although they're not 100% sensitive or specific, what they do is they allow us to identify the child who potentially has neuropathic pain, along with the clinical history and examination that you would do as well. And so that they can then be investigated further and assessed further in a specialist unit. And that way you don't miss children who have neuropathic pain. And I think that's really, really important. And so I, I like that stepwise process of diagnosis that she explained. Mm, yes. I like the way she explained about the low specificity of the questionnaires, because clearly many children with CRPS and other pain presentations can score quite highly on it, but they then clearly have to be investigated further by specialists such as yourself, Glenn. Yeah. And there you bring up another contentious theme, don't you, Conrad Riz? 
CRPS, is it a neuropathic pain or isn't it a neuropathic pain? Well, you tell me, Clint. You tell me. Well, it depends which side of the fence I want to jump over. So maybe that's a whole other podcast that we could put out one day. I would love that. So, Glenn, shall we wrap up there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Just to remind everyone out there that we'd love feedback and we'd love to hear from you. And so if you've got any comments for us, please email us at waterpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message me directly on Twitter and you can find me on at Conrad Jacobs, K-O-N-R-A-D-J-A-C-O-B-S. But otherwise, Conrad, I'm going to go on holiday now, but we will hopefully send out another podcast very soon. Definitely. And I just want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and see you next time. See you, Conrad.